Part of a writer's job is to read. It fills the tank, expands our empathy, teaches us new ways of envisioning the world and ourselves. The Outrider podcast presents Have You Read This? An ongoing miniseries project where we read and discuss those books we feel that, because we're writers, we probably should have read by now. So, Please join me and my intrepid co-host, Delia Tramontina, as we dive into another book from our endless list of unread classics. In this series, we discuss Juna Barnes' Nightwood. So get your glass of wine and get comfortable. So, here we are, halfway yes. halfway through uh, Nightwood. <laughs> I and... just got that Nightwood. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking this time? White wine. White wine? All right. White wine. So, um, I don't know about you... But right off the bat, I had to restart chapter one about seven or eight times. Wow. Um, Because those first few paragraphs were a bit challenging to get into. I think I wrote a note to myself, like, this is all one sentence. Yes, right there. One (laughs) sentence. (laughs) Because the first sentence is a paragraph long. I was pretty okay. There were definitely times I wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are things like this where I believe like this first sentence, which is 10 lines long or so, I was, you know, you have to pay attention, but you can get through it. Yeah. There were other parts, and I started just towards the end, started like – taking note of them where it's kind of like, I think this is grammatically correct, but the syntax is such that I have to make leaps or I have to, right? Like, right. That things are like, yeah. So I feel like this, like this, I feel like was okay. But, uh, there are definitely times when the, the sentences are very long and they, they, and then I'm just like, is there a word here that like, like maybe this is actually a, a verb and I didn't realize it, you know, like those right. kind of things. Like, I feel like there's a hinge that I'm not getting. Yep. No, mm-hmm. that's, that's definitely a feeling that I had. So we just kind of dove right into the, uh, the complexity of the, uh, of the language mm-hmm. for the, for the sake of our readers, what's going on in these first few chapters? Well, it's basically, and I feel, I do, I mean, I don't know if this was, if this was, hadn't been, if we didn't know that she was so attached to uh, James Joyce, if I would have been making the same comparisons, but there is this sense of like, we're going to spend a bunch of time with these people uh-huh. and then we're going to stop, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> which is what happens in you, what you, in Ulysses, right? We're going to talk all about this guy and then we're going to leave him for a really long time. Right. Um, so basically this is the story of Hedvig and Guido, who had Felix. Right. So Bow Down is all about the the origin. This is the origin story for Felix uh, Volkbein, right? Yes. 
and I will say this is a beautiful sentence. Like, I mean, some of these are really gorgeous. There, so yeah, linguistically, what I found, even in the probably what got me, why I kept rereading the first, you know, page and a half or so, was to try and get down the rhythm because I would get into mm-hmm. the thing and, and kind of lose my way and realize that I was just kind of registering letters on the page mm-hmm. and occasionally recognizing a word. So I went back and started again, trying to catch, I guess, you know, the, the rhythm of her pen, right? Mm-hmm. How she was writing, how the words are, are supposed to be falling out of her brain. Um, mm-hmm. You really have to pay attention to the punctuation. Is this yes. a, is this a glide? Like, so is is it a comma, which is a glide? Is it a colon or a period, a which glide? is a full? St- Tell me about a glide. That's just a pause. So it's it's a connecting, you know, articles. It's connecting, um, um, uh, not articles. It's connecting clauses, but it's not a full stop. You glide through it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then your your semicolons and your periods are your full stops. Mm-hmm. With, with the way she writes. So you have to pay attention to those because that oftentimes she will use that, those semicolons, as a break between thoughts that are supposed mm. to be connected, right? And that's, and I'm still having occasional problems with that, but this one, I guess the first chapter and stuff like that was, was the particularly, you know, me trying to familiarize myself yeah. with, that, with that pattern. And was I it, and I personally don't remember that many semicolons myself. And now I'm like looking through. I'm like, where are they? But the dash thing, right? Like this sentence, that middle part, right? It's that use of hyphen, right? So right, you could you could cut that middle part out and still have a full sentence. Hedvig Volkbein dash a Viennese woman blah 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 stood the Volkbein blind. arms dash gave birth gave birth right. So Hedvig Volkbein gave, gave birth. birth. <laughs> There's seven, six lines in there, right. six lines in there that are that are just explaining her. Um, so, did you find this easier because of your poetry background? Do you think, or is there some so, kinship with the ideas around language that you noticed right away? No, I think the thing is, and this is something I so, and I probably struggle. I'm sure I struggled with this with Ulysses too, which is that. I don't go into this with a poetry mind, right? I am trying to follow the narrative. Right. And so I appreciate the language. There are some sentences in here that are gorgeous. But when I'm reading poetry, especially the poetry I'm, I read and I write, um, I'm not trying to follow, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I am something like this, and I think it was the case with Ulysses, there's a certain amount of letting go you have to do. Right. And I think I was not sure at times because there were parts of this that I reread the sentence over and over and over again. And I still couldn't quite see what she was saying. Right. That right. I put some little question marks there. And so for the most part, it's it's you know, it's a narrative stuff happens. She explains it. But there were times where I'm just like, I just like look like I'm calling uncle. I don't know what the fuck you're saying. Right. But um and in those moments, I'm like, should I not be engaging with this if with a narrative mind? But of course, if I didn't, I would just be like, oh, let me not spend like that thing that you did where you were just like, I had to read this paragraph seven times. Like if I didn't, I wouldn't bother doing that because I would just be like, this is poetic and pretty. I'm just going to kind of 
yeah. have that open mind, which is what I do with poetry. Yeah. Where I'm a little bit different is that, you know, even with poetry, I'm looking for, you know, the words and their connections to make some kind of sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And at times, Barnes's prose did not make sense. Mm-hmm. This stuff. Can you and- give me an example? Because I'm going to see if, like, if you're if you're kind of reacting to the same way I'm reacting. And the thing is, when I'm reading poetry, it's not necessarily I'm not looking for meaning so much as like I am part of the yeah. meaning, right? I didn't do that with this. This is like she's telling me a story, and I'm trying to figure this out. Um, I, I, yeah, it'll take me a little while to find stuff because I didn't. I, I, I was so desperate to cling for stuff that that felt concrete. I guess I yeah. ran into the same problem with uh, with Ulysses, with Joyce. Mm-hmm. I was so desperate for that concrete something that I could hang on to, that those were the things I underlined and not the stuff that baffled me. <laughs> I did both. And, and I, even now I'm looking at things that I like put little question marks. Or sometimes actually I could have put question marks because I might have understood what I was saying, but I didn't know how it related to the thing that happened prior, possibly. Right, right. And a lot of the stuff what I found was that I, I was I was looking at other reviews by uh, um, by more contemporary writers, and a lot mm. of them were pointing out the fact that that there were a lot of uh, contradictions. So she would start a sentence saying something about you know Felix or or um, or Robin. She would start out saying one thing, and would by the end of the sentence would have contradicted herself. Mm. Right, and. I think that's probably what was, what it was that was confusing me. Was, you know, I think okay, she's going to say this about the character, and then at the back end, she's like, nope, it's different. I'm like, mm-hmm. are you just throwing words together because rhythmically they sound fun? Which yeah, is... I want one of those. If you could, if you can tell me one of those, I can Let's give you like something that confused me though. If you want to hear. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So on my 18 to 19, which I think is different in your book. So we have Felix and sometimes they refer to Felix as the Baron. Right. Right. So they're in this, they're in, I believe, I forget exactly where they are. They're at a party, I think. And Felix ends up laughing. And he's laughing, he's laughing. And then the next paragraph, it goes as abruptly as he sat straight up. And then he's talking and I don't, right? So he's talking and then the doctor talks. So actually, no, he's not talking. The doctor talks. I I did not like the doctor, by the way. Um, (laughs) That seems to be the one character that most people do like because he uh, seems the most concrete. and Really? Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. So yes, said the doctor, he's smiling. You will be disappointed. And he says something in, in what I'm assuming is Spanish. Um, oh, unfaithful one. I am no herbalist. I am no rudibuf. I have no panacea. I am not a mount bank bank. That is, I cannot or will not stand on my head. I am no tumbler, neither a friar, nor yet a 13th century Salome dancing arse up on a pair of Toledo blades 
tried to get any lovesick girl, male or female. I thought that was interesting. Lovesick girl, male or female to do it today. If you don't believe such things happened in the long back of yesterday, look up the manuscripts of the British Museum or go to the Cathedral of the Claremont Fernand. And it's all one to me because of the rich Muslims of Tunis, again, I, I don't get these references, who hire silly women right. to reduce the hour to its minimum sense. And that's when it ends. He goes on and then it ends at this line that's kind of, I heard this line, someone referenced this line, which is one of two things to find someone who is stup so stupid that he can lie to her or to love someone so much that she can lie to him. I don't know what this is all referring to <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I, and it's not it's not because I can't follow the grammar. It's just I don't know what's referring to. Right. And then Baron says I wasn't thinking of a w woman at all. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of things about being Jewish and being Christian. Right. And that's I mean maybe we should hold on to that conversation until we get to you finding a sentence where she contradicts herself. Uh, but it's going to take me forever. So we'll we'll okay. we'll try and squeeze it in at another another time. Remind me next time. But yeah, okay. no. To jump right into it, I was I was a little kind of shocked by the almost obsessive harping on the fact of his Jewness. Yeah, and it was like I think she's sympathetic. Yeah, I don't know. But, but I don't know. It was like, and then there's and then there's a repeated use of the word racial. Yeah, which I'm assuming has to do with being Jewish. I'm not even sure. But there is all of this, like, contrast. Yeah. That was, yeah. I was, I, there's, here's this, here's a sentence that's kind of stuck in my head, even though I never underlined okay. it. You know, from roundabout page four. Uh, this memory and the handkerchief that accompanied it had rotten Guido as certain flowers brought to a pitch of florid ecstasy no sooner attain their specific type than they fall into its decay, the sum total of what is the Jew. And I can't ever help but end that sentence with that, the Jew, you know, <laughs> in that tone. I, and it's yes, like, yes, yes, yes. It's a whole thing about a fucking handkerchief. I'm like, what's the handkerchief? <laughs> I remember. I remember this. As certain flowers brought to a pitch of florid ecstasy no sooner attain their specific type than they fall into its decay. I think that's part of what I'm talking about when I talk about the confusing thing. It's like mm -hmm. there's the language is is vague in a way that I'm like going, does she mean the flowers die? And why mm -hmm. is that important here? You know, um had brought in Greta. I mean, I thought it was a metaphor. As yeah, but flowers. the fact that as certain flowers brought to a pitch of a of florid ecstasy, no sooner attain their specific type, than they fall into its decay. What? Some total. Yeah. As yeah. And that's in parentheses. What does that have to do with anything else? There. Um, that's. I guess. Yeah, the asides, I think, also did a bit of confusing for me. It's like... Well, it, yeah, so as I read that, it seems to... This is my read of it, is saying that as soon as a flower reach its, reaches its pinnacle, its highest point of, like, beauty and fragrance, it's dying. It's yeah. dying. Okay. What did How, he mean by... What that has to do with the, being Jewish? I have no idea. And what does, it, what, is it, what does she mean by impermissible blood?
right? I don't know what that means. Oh, oh yeah, I remember that, but I don't. Yeah, next, I was... next page. <laughs> oh, I did actually. I double underlined that it had made Guido as it was to make his son heavy with impermissible blood. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. Double double underlined. When a Jew dies on a Christian bosom, he dies impaled. Right. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> impaled? I. I mean, are there Christian bosoms running about town so people can die on them? I, I didn't know that. Well, was a thing. I guess I guess Guido died in the act. Maybe I don't know. <gasps> oh, that's good. No, I like that. That's as good an explanation as anything I came up with. I know. Or maybe it means something else. Something you know more. Um, Maybe it's maybe it's some kind of. Uh, oh no, that didn't happen because she died in childbirth. Well, Guido's death. Guido died. And oh, he dies before. That's right. You're he right. He dies before the that's child right. is born, before Felix is born, mm -hmm. and that's when she has that whole line about you know when a Jew, you know, dies. What? Well, what page is that on? On a Christian bosom, the thing I just said. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the page after the thing with the handkerchief. The paragraph starts with "and childless as he died, save for the promise that hung it." At the Christian belt of Hedwig. Yeah. Guido had lived as all Jews do, who, cut off from their people by accident or choice, find that they must inhabit a world whose constituents, being alien, force the mind to succumb to an imaginary populace. Oh, yeah. She's not, so the writer, she's not Jewish. Correct. Gina yeah, Barnes so, is not Jewish. When a Jew well, dies on a Christian bosom, he dies impaled. Oh, so, yeah, okay. Hedvig, in spite of her agony, wept upon an outcast. Her body at that moment became the barrier, and Guido died against that wall, troubled and alone. Yeah, I don't... Is this... Yeah, I don't know. Is I like your, I like your explanation. I'm going to go with and it. He died in the act. Yeah. He died, he died boning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. Or is, or, is it, it. or is it some comment about, you know, you shouldn't have, like, interracial marriage or something? I don't know. Yeah. From the mingled passions that made up his past, out of a diversity of bloods, from the crux of a thousand impossible situations, Felix had become the accumulated and single, the embarrassed. What the fuck does that mean? Where are you? Um, page 11. On my okay, book. so you're 11, so in mine it's, I think, a little bit Is it the end of a paragraph? Yeah, it's, it's where they actually get to start to talking about Felix being heavier than his father and taller. His hair began too far back on his forehead. His face was a long, stout oval, suffering a laborious <clears throat> melancholy. One feature alone spoke of Hedvig, the oh, mouth. Oh, here we go. Which, though, which page is that for you? So when you get to the embarrassed, that's the top of page nine. Okay. My, my book is more condensed than yours. Yeah. Um, that one doesn't trouble me as much, that line. Because I think what we learned is that his father lied about being Jewish. So that there's something that perhaps Felix kind of took on as having something he should be ashamed of. That was the way I kind of read that. It's kind of hard to talk about this stuff. What it, what it is because you know there's there's it is just this extended character study, right? Mm -hmm. There's not much action going on. It's like he is this, he is that, he does this, he does that. 
Well, you're, you know, and, I, it occurred to me that and there's like, there is very little dialogue. Yeah. Right. And it isn't really until, I think I wrote it down somewhere about, for me, which would have been page 14 or 15, which is where the doctor finally shows up. Right? Yeah. And doesn't you, shut you, the fuck up. You finally, get, you finally get some action, something that feels like a story. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was like, finally having momentum, I was able to hang my hat on something. Right. But the things he says are bizarre. Well, true. It's a bit. It does. Yeah. It does feel a bit like uh, Ulysses there. Once he's, uh, once yeah. she starts letting the doctor talk. Yeah. But oddly enough, she can't sustain that Joycean babble for very long, and eventually he starts to make sense. I don't know that he makes sense to me. I mean, that whole thing I had said about. Or it's not so much that he doesn't make, like, not also so much that he doesn't make sense is I don't know why he is saying what he's saying. So there is the section where he's talking about the woman with no legs. Right. Remember? Yep. I don't know why he's talking about her. That's the story he tells <laughs> in the in the Count's um, party before the Count shows up and kicks everybody out, right? Yeah, no, I, well, he says it somewhere, and... It's a whole thing, and I pretty much followed it all. I just didn't understand why it was coming up. That was a little bit further on. Yeah. And this is always a series of someone's at a cafe, they leave the cafe, they're back in a, they're with the theater, they're out. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's. I feel like it's a series of like gatherings, right? Or a lot of it is. And it, and it is just setting it up because Felix, of course, ends up being the uh, the husband of of Robin, our uh, our mm-hmm. animalistic, you know, brutish creature that uh, everybody breaks their uh, their hearts over. Mm-hmm. I yeah, that was another reaction I had. Is like everybody's hysterical, and I don't know why. <laughs> like there's all, and I feel like that happened in Ulysses too. It's like there's all this big emotional stuff happening. And I don't know why, right? right? Like Felix starts laughing uncontrollably and then he stops and like bolts straight up. You know what I mean? Like there's all this like big gesture and emoting. Is that supposed to imply that they're somehow drunk all the time? Oh, maybe. I like Nora. She seemed reasonable. Um well, I, I noticed there's something interesting that I've that I discovered, you know, in the in the sections that we read. I struggled to get through Felix's section, bow down. I struggled through La Somnambule, just because you know it's again just the denseness of it all, you know. And, and although, by the way, and and I did find this particular passage rather interesting and revealing, right? It's where um, uh, Felix and the doctor take uh, Robin up to her room, or they go up to her room because uh, uh, someone's brought to there because she's. The soldier tells him that she's like. Yeah, the the the, uh, the hotel person, whatever, and and so the doctor's tending to uh, to her, and and Felix is watching through the doorway, and and the narrator writes with a tension in his stomach, such as one suffers when watching an acrobat leaving the virtuosity of his safety in a mad unraveling whirl into probable death. Felix watched the hand descend, take up the note and disappear into the limbo of the doctor's pocket. Right. And I highlighted that thing with thief, you know, 
mm-hmm. know that was that was a I there were moments like that where into the somnibule it got a little bit more concrete, a little bit more story, and yes. I and I tended yes. to hitch onto that and thought that was that we're doing okay, we're doing okay, and then it would drift back into. You know, things like, in the tones of this girl's voice was the pitch of one enchanted with the gift of postponed abandoned, the low, drawling, aside voice of the actor who, in the soft usury of his speech, withholds a vocabulary until the profitable moment when he shall be facing his audience, in her case a guarded extempore to the body of what would be said at some later point when she would be able to see them. I just was even reading that out loud. I'm still lost in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> and I, and I'm stuck on going soft usury, soft interest. Cause usury is interest. It's right. Is there another way, term? Is another definition for the word usury? There was like a word that I thought I know the, I knew the, I forgot what word it was, but, um, a legal action or practice of lending money at a reasonably high rates of interest. That was the first thing I got. Yeah. But I remember there being a, a word that I'm just like, oh, I know what this is. And I looked it up and there was another like obscure meaning for it. And I'm just like, oh, that right. makes more sense. The one I was just looking at, where is it? Oh, this one. Okay. I put a little exclamation point next to this one. So that means I, I liked it. She was gracious and yet fading like an old statue in a garden that symbolizes the weather through which it has endured. It is not so much the work of man as the work of wind and rain and the herd of the seasons. And though formed in man's image is a figure of doom. I was really kind of, you know, struggling through that, you know, night watch as well, which is the section giving us Nora's, you know, origin story that one seemed done okay but you know what i noticed was there was distinct switch not only in the focus and clarity and direction directness of barnes's writing you know in certain moments in the other chapters there were moments where everything got really focused and really and and pointed and concrete but then most of the time she was just kind of wandering out in space is what it felt like you know like the stuff we've been reciting now is just you're wondering what does that mean what is that language Mm -hmm. saying but when we got into the squatter i had no problems whatsoever maybe my brain finally kicked in but what i ended up actually thinking by the end of it and I even changed the color of my pen when I started marking text in the squatter from black to red because I realized, oh, you know what's focusing the author's, you know, eye and observational concreteness in this section is hatred. Mm. Right? The other she's kind of indifferent. Do you to think f- Barnes hates the Oh yeah, the characters. The, no, I mean, this, I hate the characters. This but, character in um, particular, Jenny, she Jenny? hates with a passion. Felix, she's kind of indifference to. Um, How does she feel know, about Robin? Robin, she loves, but Robin also is is a source of pain. So that's why that that's why the section describing Robin's origin story occasionally goes vague, is because it goes vague when it bumps up against the pain. Mm-hmm. It's clear when it's when it's writing about the person that she loves, the version of Robin that she loves, or or the version that is tragic that she has sympathy for. You know, the drunkard who needs everybody's help. Then she, mm-hmm. then it gets clear. But when she's writing, you know, about uh, 
the things that cause the pain, that's the stuff that, that she gets really kind of fuzzy about. When we get to the squatter, Jenny Petherbridge is just, that's all bile. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that is probably the clearest, most, you know, you know, and there's no, there's, there's very little wandering into the past with Jenny. We get the idea, we get really clear that she has four ex-husbands, four dead husbands, mm-hmm. you know, but that's woven into the, into all this vitriol that she levels at her only severed. Could any part of her have been called right? <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, this, this whole thing, this whole chapter, the squatter, it has a clarity that none of the other chapters have. And it's all, I think, inspired by, by spite. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I found I found Jenny and Robin similarly um, hysterical. <laughs> um, but even this, right? Even as we're like, I agree. Like I was following this, not all of it. As I look at a little question mark that I put somewhere here, but um, there is. So basically, we get the description of Jenny. We find out that she becomes kind of obsessed with. Robin and Nora, right? It says something, right. the word squatter, right? And the squatter's in quotes in the, in the chapter title, right? Which is the only one. Yep. And in, when she fell in love, it was with a perfect fury of accumulated dishonesty. She became instantly a dealer in secondhand and therefore incalculable emotions, as from the solid archives of usage, she had stolen or appropriated the dignity of speech. So she appropriated the most passionate love that she knew, Nora's for Robin. She was a squatter by instinct. Yep. Right. So there's a sense of like, like that's like on an emotional level, right? I can read this. I, I get the words, but mm-hmm. on, a, on an emotional level, it is as if she either like, get becomes obsessed with their relationship or somehow falls in love with Robin by proxy, right? There isn't, there's something odd about it. So when they're in this, I, I think they're at a party again or at her house and they go into the carriages and she's freaking out about who Robin's going to sit next to. Right. Nora's not there. Like it took me a while to realize that Nora wasn't there right. because where I, where'd she go? I don't know. But, um, but this like, very kind of hysterical, right? This, this, she doesn't just say like she fell in love with Robin because Robin is whatever Robin is that makes people fall in love with her. It's something about the relationship with Nora. Right. Right. Yeah. There's even a comment earlier where, um, the picture that Jenny has of, of Robin was one taken for Nora. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have that underlined. The photograph taken of yeah, Robin. Yeah, it takes Norris a bold and authentic table. robber to get first-hand plunder. Someone else's marriage ring was on her finger. The photograph taken of Robin for Nora sat upon her table. The books mm-hmm. in her library were other people's selections. She lived among her own things like a visitor to a room kept exactly as it was when. She tiptoed even when she went to draw a bath, nervous and andante. 
Yeah, I mean, that's just reading this whole stuff. I just was like, God, she hates Jenny. This whoever the the author just is hates her. There's yeah. So Jenny knew about Nora immediately. To know Robin ten minutes was to know about Nora. Yeah. Robin spoke of her in long, rambling, impassioned sentences, and I underlined that part and wrote out to the side. And Nora writes this way. <laughs> Nora in quotes mm-hmm. being, you know. Juna. Juna Barnes. It had caught, but this Je- is, okay. it had caught Jenny by the ear. She listened, and both loves seemed to be one and her own. From that moment, the catastrophe was inevitable. This was in 1927. Mm-hmm. So here's one I got confused at, right? She had a, um, the, the, for on my, in my version, the page following the part with the photograph of Robin, right? Uh-huh. She had a continual rapacity for other people's facts, absorbing time. She held herself responsible for historic characters. She was avid and disorderly in her heart. She defiled the very meaning of personality in her passion to be a person. Semicolon. This is where I get confused. Somewhere about her was the tension of the accident that made the beast the human endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As so I so I read this and then I wrote all over it and then I went back the last couple of days and I went over what I had marked mm-hmm. and I agree like there was a sense where when I got past bow down I was just like oh this is where stuff starts happening and I did feel that there was more of a flow to um the narrative even um the somnambule Yep. I was kind of okay with. Right. Um, yep. Oh, but here's, can I read this? Okay, so this is something yeah. I noted for syntax, right? Okay, so this is my page 59. Um, at first, Nora went to Robin, semicolon. But as time passed, realizing that a growing tension was in Robin, unable to endure the knowledge that she was in the way or forgotten, seeing Robin go from table to table, from drink to drink, from person to person, realizing that if she herself were not there, Robin might return to her as the one who, out of all the turbulent night, had not been lived through. Nora stayed at home, lying awake or sleeping. Now, I understand what's being said there. Right. Um, but there's a sense of like... that the, 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 the flow of the sentence is not what I expect. Right. There seems to be like a subject that's missing a verb or something. Right. Like or something like something doesn't seem to be connecting. What uh, what's what page was that for you? So for me, it was 59. The beginning of the sent the beginning of the paragraph is which I also underlined in the years that they lived together. The departures of Robin became slowly increasing. It became a slowly increasing rhythm. This is when they're talking about how Robin would like go out all the time and. Right. Nora would be very nervous. 59, so it's probably a little bit later in your version. Yep. Not quite 10 pages, but... Yeah, there we are. 64 for me. In the years that they lived together, the departures of Robin became slowly increasing. Yeah, it's that first sentence. In the years that they lived together, the departure of Robin became slowly increasing rhythm. I was okay with that, right? Like, I knew at least... It's, I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect sentence. I'm just saying, like, I understood what was being said. 
and it's short enough that like I don't need to nitpick. But like that sentence after, which is lengthy. First, Nora went with Robin, but as time passed, was that a growing tension was Robin unable to. Robin's absence as the night drew on became a physical removal, insupportable and irreparable, as an amputated hand yeah. cannot be disowned because it is experiencing a futurity of which the victim is its forebear. So Robin was an amputation that Nora could not renounce. I kind of like that line. I get that. Yeah. As the wrist long, so are heart longed. I mean, she might be taking the metaphor too long, but I, yeah. yeah. Here's another one I wrote. Nice sentence, but syntax. Next page. If she was diverted, as was sometimes the case, by the interposition of a company of soldiers, a wedding or a funeral, then by her agitation, she seemed a part of the function to the person she stumbled against, as a moth by his very entanglement with the heat that shall be his extinction is associated with flame as a component part of its function, a, a component part of its function. Mm -hmm. Now, I get what this is saying. It's a beautiful sentence, but I don't know if the if like if it lines up. Grammatically. Right. It it obscure the image it's trying to give to give you it obscures itself with its, its own gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Right. That's I guess that's something. But this I understand. Like I understand what this sentence is saying. Right. This is quite clear. Right. Yeah. How many times did you have to read it to get it though? Two. I, I don't know. I should have I should have put little hash marks next to my sentences. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. That's it's something that I've it's something that I constantly kind of puzzle over. Right. And it's something that I, I try to to be conscious of when I'm doing my own writing. Mm -hmm. It's also something that that sometimes as as a reader There was there was a reviewer that I read who who was saying that you know generally when she reads things she gets why they're classics that becomes clear as she's reading this she goes but I when I was reading this I didn't get it I don't see why this is considered a classic and a lot of that had to do with is it we haven't we never heard of it yeah but it it is it's one of those recovered classics right it's not something mm -hmm. that in its time was thought to be so but has been recovered because of um you know english departments and and lit majors and professors you know trying to um balance uh reading lists so it's not all dead straight white males mm -hmm. right and so they're going back for those those books that were that were praised by contemporaries right and but had somehow fallen out of print or been forgotten because of sales or public interest and say, mm -hmm. wait, these are these were important. These were important. And that seems to be the uh, the verdict or the, the point behind dragging this back into the light is that this is somehow important. And and I think at times. And that's a good thing. We should go back and recover Mm -hmm. Texts, particularly by marginalized groups, women, you know, LGBTQ writers, minority, you know, 
people of color people that of color. we should go, we should go back and 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 recover those texts and not let them fade away or die these they're important um and they're they're not only important to the communities that they arose out of and go back into but they're important to the the dominant white culture in this country absolutely because we can we have to be made aware we have to become conscious and and actively go back and and recover the erasures of mm-hmm. our our um insensitive self-obsession <laughs> mm-hmm. right so i kind of understand kind of why th- but I but I wonder if sometimes the peop that people in their attempt to resuscitate these are are going a bit overboard with the praise. Cause I've I've always had a problem with T. S. Eliot because he wanted to make poetry an elitist endeavor. Right? He wanted to pull it out of the hands of the of the of the hoi polloi, the hairy people and make it academic. And he kind of did for a very long time. He won, Mm -hmm. which is why poetry kind of fell out of, out of favor until we started having the rise of, of slam poetry and and spoken word. And people realized, Oh wait, no poetry's cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the average people started to get back into it. So, you know, his, his praise of this, like, you know, when we talked about this in, in the first episode was, to me, there didn't seem to be much in his introduction to really win me over to the book. Mm-hmm. You have to read it a lot, like I did, to get it. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> but, and, when, but if we're being honest about it, what about this is not also true of Ulysses? True, true. And that's... And why do we keep reading... I, like I said, you know, I, I once... I compared Ulysses to, like, the literary version of a snipe hunt. <laughs> And are a we? Snipe hunt? Yeah. As in a sniper? No, a snipe hunt. So the the snipe hunt. That's where this was. I don't a, know what a snipe. We've talked about this snipe, before. Snipe and I. S N I P E. Snipe hunt. So that's New word, hunt. Snipe hunt. Right. So that's that's where that's where somebody says to you, a naive person, we're going to go out and hunt snipe tonight. Now the way I was introduced to my first actual snipe hunt, quote unquote, was as a Boy Scout, and what happened was is that we went out late at night. On, on a camping trip, a couple of the older scouts, one of them had a flashlight, and the other one, we didn't know it at the time, had a, uh, a tumbler that he had secured with some weights or whatever. And so these two were working in tandem, and us younger scouts were following along. And he would, you know, kind of nudge his friend, and he would throw this plastic, you know, cup or tumbler out into the out into the night sky and his friend would swipe the flashlight across it and be like there it is and we would go running after this thing and somebody else out there in the woods playing along with it would snatch it up and hide it and we were all running after nothing basically hunting snipe Mm -hmm. right and it's it's so a snipe hunt is is essentially you know um being being sent on on a false chase a false hunt Mm -hmm. Um, let's find the actual definition out in the uh, in the world here. So, a snipe hunt, an act of hunting wild snipe. A practical joke with an unwitting victim is set in pursuit of something that doesn't exist. 
Yeah, well, here's another one. I like this one. A snipe hunt is a type of practical joke or fool's errand in existence in North America since the 1840s, in which an unsuspected newcomer is duped into trying to catch a non-existent animal, animal called a snipe. Right. Although snipes are actual birds, a snipe hunt is a quest for an imaginary creature whose description varies. And that's and that's what Ulysses is. I think that's it's it's this it is this big giant tome that we are told means something. Mm-hmm. But having read it, I'm not sure it does mean anything at all, except it's a it's this it's it's English majors who got duped into reading at some point sitting there going, well, I got duped into reading it. Let's get the kids. It's kind of an initiation, right? That's how we used it in the scouts. The snipe hunt was an initiation. Right, but I don't know if the people, the English students, are really looking at it as a snipe hunt. Yeah, I see. But, right, but that's what I compared it to, because everybody says there's something significant to Ulysses. I got done reading it and went, what the fuck? And I'm kind of doing that a little bit, at least until I got to uh, to the squatter, was sitting there, because just that, that rambling, you know, this way the syntax goes in it. I'm thinking, okay, I'm not getting I'm not getting all of the stuff out of this that Jeanette Winterson and T. S. Eliot said I was gonna get out of it. Mm-hmm. And and it's and it's not and I was expect and and I suppose I wanted to feel like I was going to get something out of it that would make it appealing to want to read it again to get more out of it that they say that you get out of it from multiple readings. But I'm I'm struggling to find the thing in here, you know, to kind of hang that desire on. Are you going to change our plan? No, no. I figure okay. I'm willing to write it out to the end. But again, I my my thing is that anytime I come across... Anytime I come across text that that confounds me, I begin to question my intelligence. It's particularly when somebody says, oh, it's so great. And then the one hand I'm going, okay, wow me. And I kind of expect either I'm going to be wowed or disappointed, but not confused. <laughs> right? And... If it were if it were wow, I'd be like, yay, I get it. If I were disappointed, I'd be like, eh, this person overhyped it. When I'm confused, it's like, am I st- am I missing something? What am I missing? Am I stupid? Do I need to be gay to get this? You know, mm-hmm. that's right. So it's it's kind of that uh, that feeling I got my first summer at Naropa. Then, um, you know, when um, oh, what's her? What was her name? Talia Field. Yeah, Talia Field got up and, and read something, and I just remember sitting there listening to her reading this stuff, and it was just, it was like whew, way over my head. But that's different. That's, way over I, my and head. I love that book, but that's a different, that's a different project, point in line, which I love. Um, and I thought, how, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> but that's a, that, that's hybrid work, right? right? Like that's like narrative mixed with experimental poetry mixed with playwright right like she's doing a whole other thing right but i'm not stupid why didn't i get it that's that was one of those moments where like i knew what i was i kind of had an inkling of what i was getting into because this people had been talking about her and her stuff and how you know how it was 
And then she mm-hmm. read it, and it, I wasn't wowed, and I wasn't underwhelmed. I was confused. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. <laughs> but it might be just not your thing, right? Like, I've told you, like, there are, like, science fiction books. I have right. a really hard time reading. And I'm pretty sure no one else has a problem with them. Like, I read... Ursula Gwynn's Left Hand of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Did you read that? No. Did you have no. a problem with it? I okay. haven't read it. I did. Oh, you haven't read it. Okay. I, I, you know, people love her. I had heard about the, I had heard about it because there's a whole thing that she plays with gender. So I'm like, oh, this is my thing. Let me read this. I've never heard that book described as a difficult read. Right. And I had a lot of trouble with it. Hmm. More trouble than this. Granted, I was reading on the bus and stuff like that. It wasn't something I was trying to. I wasn't trying to discuss it during a podcast, so I didn't put as much energy into it. Right. But um, I don't know anybody else who had that. You know, so I think there's just kind of where was your interest? Where's your whatever? Mm. Um. So this, because I don't want this to be a condemnation of difficult writing. Oh, absolutely. Right? I agree. Right. And so I would ask you, like, who's a difficult writer, a difficult narrative writer that you like? Because I can I can think of a bunch. Contemporary ish. How are we going to define difficult? You know, because I don't I don't know you that there to are pay attention. I don't right? know. that like, there are, Yeah. I don't know that there are many contemporary writers writing the kind of difficult prose that we're talking about when we talk about Ulysses or, or Nightwood. No, um, no, I agree. I, these well, days. I mean, at least not that I know of. They might be, um, but. Well, you know, I mean, you, you, you do have to pay attention with Lawrence Durrell. Um, I'm sitting here looking at my bookcase trying to okay i have one for you one that also one that i read that i could not and again i don't know that this was i don't know how other people react to this book naked lunch right william burroughs yeah i've got that on my shelf you know, I mean, I people are always surprised think an, i think it's an acid trip which might right. be the issue right it's it's um well i will tell you one thing that eliminates us reading that for the podcast because i haven't read it I would like to, I would read it again. I can't tell you I have any, any, the only thing I like would have on you is that I was able to follow because the, the version I had had the transcript from the court case because they tried to make it, they tried to declare it obscene. Right. So there's a, there's, there's a transcript for the the court case. Um, I, I have not read it, but gravity's rainbow is supposed to be a shit show to read. But again, like, I don't know, right? Well, I guess that would be my, that would be my answer is that as Pynchon's gotten older, he's gotten more difficult for me to read because I did read. Did you read read, Gravity's Rainbow? I've, I've made an attempt at it, but never got, never got past the first chapter. Okay. What was it like? It was, it was tough from what I, from the first few pages that I read, but I did read. Is it meant to be understood? I think so. I don't. I don't know that any okay. writer sets out to be misunderstood or or, or opaque to begin with. I think they have oh, a certain. Well, if they do, I want to chase them down a dark alley and beat them stupid. But 
No, because I think there can be, for instance, with Naked Lunch, my guess is some of that is like stream of consciousness, I'm high writing. I might be wrong, right? Like, I don't know. Okay. I think that there can be writing where people start possibly are, are kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, they're, they're kind of going off. Right. Right. And they, it's not they, they, in, where they intend the effect to be disorienting. Yes. Okay. That I get. I get that. I understand. I know when a writer is trying to be purposefully creating that sense of disorientation to give you that that sense of being high or 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 mentally you know fractured or broken. But I'm I'm talking about writers that intentionally go out to be misunderstood, to be purposefully opaque and dense and impenetrable. As, no, I think that happens. <laughs> I, th I, th oh, I No, I mean, I know it happens, but I don't think they set out for it to be intentional. I don't, because that, that implies a certain amount of not wanting to be read and understood. Well, when Joyce wrote Ulysses, I'm sure he wasn't like, this is a light romp. People will get through this very quickly. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm sure he knew he was reading some, writing something very dense that was not necessarily easily followed in a narrative sense. Right, but I don't think his intention was to be purposefully obscure. He was he was laying out, I guess he was, I mean, I would definitely put him, if I were going to, to give him the benefit of the doubt, he was, he was dropping a lot of Easter eggs and was wanting to encourage multiple readings and people to do research so they could make all these weird connections that he was making. But fundamentally, he was trying to tell a story just with a lot of different forms and a lot of different stuff because he was one of those people that was spent a whole lot of time up in his own noggin and didn't mm -hmm. really get out much. Um, yeah, Bobby made some comment about him devouring his own brain in one of a class where we ended up talking mm -hmm. tangentially about Ulysses and Joyce and, and things like that. Or it can be, you know, like the writing we're talking about where, or the type of writing I do in my poetry, which is that you as the reader is going to engage with this, are going to go to engage with this thing. Right. And you're going to bring your own stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're going to complete the arc. Right. So there is, there is writing, I feel that can be intentionally open, right? So if we're not, I don't necessarily think of it as obscure. Mm -hmm. It can be read as obscure if you're trying to read it as a straight narrative, but it could be that it is written for it to be open. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that depends on how we define open. Open being that meaning is not static. Right. I don't. I think, I think only hacks write closed. I think people that are actually trying to be honest are, by nature, their prose is open. It's, and I've, I've always said that, you know, there, there are, I cannot tell an audience, my readers, what a, a scene or a moment or an image means in a story. I can't give them that definition. I can point them in a direction and say something over here is important. And what they determine to be important in that field is entirely something they bring to the text. 
Right, but you are describing a scene, right? So if you were in, in writing a scene where someone comes into their house, they cook an egg, they eat the egg, they uh, drink some coffee, and they fight with their spouse, mm-hmm. and I read it, and I said, this person ran outside, beat a child, killed them. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. Like, I'm reading this person came home, cooked an egg, ate the egg, drank the coffee, like I'm reading those events. Now, I could make different meaning of those events, but you are you are conveying that those those actions, and right. I'm reading those actions, right? Right. Um, the emotional resonance that that's me. That that's more me. Um, but there are texts that are not written that concretely. And of course that what I wrote is very concrete, but like what I just said is very concrete, but right. How someone describes came home, fried an egg, whatever can have levels of concreteness. Right. I still think that's doing kind of what I said it is. You're pointing them in a direction. Anytime you put words on a paper that someone's going to read, you're pointing them in a direction. Mm -hmm. And what they pull Mm -hmm. from that is entirely, you know, from that reader. I understand that kind of openness. But then there is is a a level of of something you could call openness that's really opaque. Mm -hmm. Right? It's this idea, because... In order, and in order to get to that point, you have to basically adopt the stance that words don't mean the things that they are codified as meaning, and that you and that you are assuming that the reader will, through the context of the things you put on the page, know that when you say horse, you mean dog. In order to have this kind of, you know, are you saying that's what's happening here? I'm saying, yeah, I, th- I think that sometimes when you when you have this openness, this not the not an openness, but when you and have this. And by the way, I'm using. And by the way, I'm saying horse, but I mean dog. That to me is not open. That's right. not my definition of openness. Right, but yeah. but w- that's the thing that I where I'm getting at here is that you know anytime you set something down, whether you have an open or a closed text, this was something that I used to argue with. Uh, um, Tom um, from graduate school. I can't remember his last name. Morgan and some of the others. You know, the the guys that were very obsessed with the language poets. Tom wasn't obsessed with language poets. He did he did nature poetry. Right, but he we there were conversations we had that that you know was about disrupting and disassociating the uh, the meanings of words and I'm like going, "Yeah, no." <laughs> but you know, so, you know, you can, anytime you set things down with, with language, a language that we have all agreed upon, there's going to be some boundary to that openness, right? You can't remove the boundaries of language without descending into complete opaque meaninglessness, in mm-hmm. which case you might as well just write poetry that's and that's the end of the line and you've said everything in the world just with that guttural sound right and then you come to that with whatever it is that you want to bring to it 
was was that a poem about you know your menstrual cycle or about you know the dog down the street that killed my cat who knows right (laughs) (laughs) and that's what i'm saying is you know for me that's i guess that's why this idea about open and closed text is is always seemed a bit too academic right you're either making sense or you're not making sense what you then what the writer's doing is either allowing space for the reader to participate or restricting the reader's ability to participate and the more structured concrete and direct a writer goes this means this this means this this means as the person picked up the glass and the glass represents x you know those type of writers that close that all out and i think that's kind of what joyce does this is why it feels so dense is because joyce has a certain meaning to what he's doing this string of words he wants you to look at this thing and see a certain thing and he's closed that text off to that meaning and that's kind of what she's doing here you think so for joyce yep that is my brand new theory is that they are so specific about what they want the thing to mean the last two minutes like when'd you come out with it brand new theory Since, since we've been talking yeah well, it's also probably been in my subconscious for quite a while. Is you know, is because describing Joyce as an open text doesn't make any sense. Because if you can bring anything you want into Joyce, then that text completely disintegrates as having any meaning but whatsoever. But I think saying openness is you can bring whatever you want is also. An ex- I think that's an extreme way of describing openness. Mm, perhaps, yeah. So I think of. When we're thinking about like difficult, right? Difficult narrative, right? And I use this example, and it's not a great example. It's just one in which I can like remember. Um, so, did you ever read Toni Morrison's Beloved? If you didn't, you should. No, I didn't. I've read Tar Baby and The Bluest Eye. I think I think the only novel I've read is Tar Baby, and that everything else has been her essays and literary okay. criticism. So I've, I've read, because of a class, I've read that book three times. And the first time I read it, I had, and this is years ago. This is like when I was still living in New York. So I was like in my early 20s, maybe. Um, had a hard time with that book. And it was just kind of like I'm reading the words and I don't know what's happening. And then second time I read it, I was like, I'm going to sit down and like read it. And right. I followed it. But I found it to be difficult writing. And not all of her writing is difficult. But I found her writing no. difficult. And, what, and so this is a scene that I remember that kind of explains it. She is describing a situation where there are slaves and they're chained together, Mm -hmm. I think by their legs, right? And they're put in a cage that I assume has no bottom. It is basically bars that are just going into the ground. There's nothing under here. And it starts to rain and it's at night, they're all in a row. And from the point of view of, I think one of the slaves who I think is the the main character, if I remember correctly, he feels someone, he feels his leg get pulled to the right and then get pulled to the left. And what is actually happening is they are communicating with each other that because the ground is wet, they're gonna get under the cage and escape. Right. At no time does she actually say that. Mm -hmm. What she does is she explains the action And for me, I have to pay attention to realize that's what they're doing, right? 
jolted to the right, jolted to the left. They realize that basically they all have to understand mm-hmm. because if someone gets left behind, they're going to drown. Right. So this is a decision they all have to figure out. Like they all have to, they, they are, they are um, risking that someone might not catch on. Right. And they have to act as a unit. Right. Um, and they, and they do it and they escape. Mm-hmm. But that, like, we're going to crawl under the cage, those words are never said. Right. It's a description of what is happening in minute detail, and you have to kind of really closely follow it to realize that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, like, that type of narrative I can find rather difficult because I have to pay so close attention to the overall meaning that's not actually being said. Right. The subtext. You have to, um, you have to listen for yeah. the subtext. and. Dude, I love that. Subtext is is the most important thing to all fiction. And some people have it close to the surface. It's easy to get. Some people put it way down underneath, and it's harder to get to. How are we using the term subtext? It's the... I think uh, it's word differently. It's the, uh, it's the hidden, latent, unspoken meaning in a story to a scene or to an action. Okay. See, and I think I think of subtext being more or less concrete than what I described, which is like... They did an action and they just didn't tell like what the action was. I think I think of subtext as being more like meaning, like what you're talking about, which would be like, right. yeah. But that does. But but then you have but then you have the the subtext of the narrative. Then you have the subtext within the narrative. Mm-hmm. Because this is the fun thing about you know about fiction is that there there are layers to the to the mo- to the moment. So there is. You have you have this. I guess one of the best ways to kind of describe it is also how we think about time, in when it comes to a, a text. You have you have the time that it takes to traverse the text from page one to page mm-hmm. four hundred. Mm-hmm. You have the time it takes of a particular scene that it takes for that scene to occur. So. You know, if if it's important that a scene happens during a five minute span and then there's this the the greater time within the story, when is this moment taking place within the lifespan time of the character? And when is that character's lifespan taking place in relation to the time that we are reading the text? So there's like four different layers of time within any given story. And there's four sometimes more layers of subtext within a particular scene because you have the the subtext that the author is trying to convey in this moment then you have the subtext the unspoken communication between two characters that might be talking about a dog within mm-hmm. a scene but they're actually talking about their relationship and then you have that and then underneath that is the subtext that the author is, has about saying something about relationships and failures of communication, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's, so yeah, so Tony Morrison's, that scene there, you've got, you know, the subtext is, there's a subtext going on within those people chained together. They're unspoken mm-hmm. thing, this tug this way, that tug that way. Mm-hmm. There's something that they have to know. They have to read They're beneath. communicating with each other, yeah. Right, and then there's that author's communication of that to you without having to... Um, spell it out because because if she did spell it out that would almost be like an insult to your intelligence you she's trying to give to you that that sense of of quiet communication that's that enslaved people had to develop in order to survive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she's trying to pass that on to you a white lady reader 
Mm-hmm. There's, so yeah, there's multiple layers of subtext to that. And mm-hmm. if you had to struggle with it, well, yeah, you don't have that biological genetic history of enslavement, of, of, mm-hmm. of living in a culture where, where you have to always speak in code mm-hmm. in order to avoid, you know, retribution for no other reason. Yeah. That's why she's fucking brilliant. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why you should read that book. Yep. So, yep. Watchmen, what of the night to the end of the book for uh, for two weeks from now? Okay. So that should be pretty quick because I think now we're in – because what I think is is that the whole – the first section of the book that we read is is the character setup. We get all the sketches of the characters. They're all in place now. From Watchmen, what of the more. night – to the end of the book, I think is going to be more concrete and actionable. This is going to be the, uh, the denouement of, of Robin, Jenny and, and Nora. I, yeah, I, you know what? I forgot about Jenny. So I was like surprised when Jenny popped up, I'm like, who the hell is this person? And why is she in this book? I'm trying <laughs> to find, I'm trying to find a line that I like there just to end because I thought it was funny. I mean, there, there were some really, I think it was about the doctor. <laughs> I can't find it, but it's the one about the doctor. I think it's the doctor where it says it says he always holds his hands like a dog that's oh. walking on his hind legs. Yeah, yeah, that was. I got a chuckle out of that. I think I underlined yeah. that. That was a great line because I could see it. This is another good line. Such a woman is the infected carrier of the past. Hmm. Yeah. His hands, which he always carried like a dog who was walking on his hind legs, seems to be holding his attention. Then he seemed to be holding his attention. Then he said, raising his large melancholy eyes with the bright twinkle that often came into them. Why is it that whenever I hear music, I think I'm a bride? Yeah. All said with these. And you can do it. That was such a good description that immediately I was like, oh, yeah, that's this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew. Ex- yeah. No, there are some there are definitely some moments where where uh, Miss Barnes nails a description so precisely. There's like, oh, yeah. Here's one. Right. A couple a few lines later, he knew that he would. This, and this one goes off the rails a little bit, but I get like you get it. Uh-huh. He knew that he would continue to like the doctor, though he was aware that it would be in spite of a long series of convulsions of the spirit analogous to the displa- displacement in the fluids of an oyster that must cover its ri- its itch with a pearl. Yep. So he, he would have to cover the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, she definitely has moments and it it did, it did make me feel rather bad for her because there was someone who pointed out that, uh, that even though, uh, T.S. Eliot praised this book quite, you know, effusively, he did at one point, oh, Oh, even Eliot, who praised it once said of Barnes, never has so much genius been combined with so little talent. And this, after that introduction he wrote for the book. That's, huh. Yeah, that's cruel, right? So much genius, so little talent? Right. 
Never has so much genius been combined with so little talent. Hmm. And that's from Elliot, who who was the editor for the book and wrote that introduction. Maybe that was why his introduction was kind of flat. Who knows? Hmm. Fickle little fucker. Yeah. Probably just an angry, upset white dude. All right. <laughs> I don't know about those. Yep. All right. Two weeks. Rest of the book. Two weeks. Two. And then we read the whole thing over again. Yep. If you still want to do that. you will love it. I will you're gonna, you're gonna, love it. You I are going to grow in, to love yeah, it. I will grow to love it. Do you love it? No, I don't love anything. Um, <laughs> I don't like the characters. I got to tell you, I do not like the characters. <laughs> I, I like Nora. Yeah. Um, I, I, find the, I find the doctor to be a pontificating blowhard. Um, right. Jenny and Robin are both unhinged. Yes. And... Uh, Poor and, Felix. Uh, Felix, I don't have much of an opinion of. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in a couple weeks. Have a good night. Bye. Bye-bye. The Outrider Podcast is recorded by me, Jason Quinn-Malott, and the sound editing and post-production is performed by Heather Ann Eden.